This is a recording made in the chapter of the open book, and it is number three of the series entitled, Truly Furnished. We will read together, as an introduction to our third study, the second half of chapter two of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting at verse 16. Two Timothy chapter two, starting at verse sixteen. The passage ended, you remember, last time, on that very important verse: "Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth." And you will find, as we read down this chapter, one or two references that show you the apostle is applying this principle of right division as he goes on. But Shun profane and vain babblings. Well, that's a right division. That's very distinct from the word of truth. The word of truth over against profane and vain babblings. For they will increase unto more ungodliness. And their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenius and Philetus. But what have they done? Well, they've not rightly divided the word of truth with regard to the resurrection. Who concerning the truth have heard, saying, that the resurrection is past already. Now they cannot be referring to the resurrection of Christ, for blessed be God, that is past already. So they must be referring to the hope of the resurrection before the believer, and they have overthrown the faith of some. He speaks about overthrowing, so he immediately thinks about a foundation that stands sure. That's another right division, isn't it? Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, and there is another rendering which puts it this way. Nevertheless, the sure foundation of God standeth. And you can take your choice, it comes to the same thing at the end. It stands because it's sure. Having this seal, and it's a double seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his, that is stressing the elective element. And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity, that's your response. There's two sides. God hath chosen you, you seek to walk worthy. But in a great house, a more right division, in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honour and some to dishonour. That is not quite correct. It simply means some that have no honour. It's not dishonour, that's a wrong term today. Uh, this would refer to a saucepan. You wouldn't say a saucepan is, is dishonourable. It's got no honour at all. But if you had a, a, a wonderful piece of um, Cellini's gold workmanship, oh, you say, that's a vessel unto honour. Now, I haven't got any gold or silver, as far as I know, genuine gold or silver vessels in my house. Uh, but I do know there are some vessels unto honour, and some... Well, I know they're there and they minister to my needs, but where to find them if you sent me, I wouldn't quite know. I hunt all over the place in the wrong place. So in a great house, there's a variety of vessels. Well, now he says, right, all right, but look, Timothy, if a man therefore purge himself from these, he's looking after himself and not chasing the other man round and purging him, you notice. He's being sure that so far as he's concerned, he is clean and right and true. He shall be a vessel unto honour sanctified and meet for the master's use 
and prepared unto every good work. So you see, we've got uh, at the end of verse 17 of the next chapter, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. That's the testimony of the scriptures in his heart and life. Here we have the other attitude, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. Again an address to Timothy, and through Timothy to us. Flee also youthful lusts, but follow. Flee, follow. Follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace. It's so wrong to emphasize the negative. He doesn't say flee youthful lusts and leave it there. That's empty, that's negative. But he does say follow, and when he says follow, he's got a series. Follow, positive, righteousness, faith, charity, peace. With them that are call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But foolish and unlearned questions avoid. Now he's getting back to profane and vain babblings which ought to shun. Avoid, knowing that they do gender strife. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men. Apt to teach, that's stressed again, that comes in chapter 2 earlier, it comes again at the end. Apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. If God, peradventure, the last word is with God, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. So the bondage that a, a person may submit to today is largely the bondage of entertaining something which he believes to be true which isn't. False teaching. Peradventure, God will give him repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. And as soon as he does that, the fetters fall and he stands in the freedom that Christ has given to him. Well now, we are considering the bearing of 2 Timothy chapter 3, 15, 16 and 17. And we've looked at the passage as a whole. We've observed that the child is addressed in verse 15. And the man of God is there in verse 17. So the scriptures start with you, they go through with you, and they're still there at the end. You can never be say you done with them. And then we find that the word holy scriptures in verse 15 and the word um, scripture in verse 16 are not the same words. The first set, holy scriptures, are the holy grammar writings. And the, or letters rather. And the word in 16 is the word graphy, that which is written. So from a child, you have known the ABC, and then when you become a man, you put the letters together and you spell them into words which are written for our learning. Then it goes on to tell you that they are profitable. So you see, in verse 15, they are able. And then in verse 16, they are profit able. Oh, that's only just a play on words, isn't it? But you see, there's an advance, isn't there? They're able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus, and they are profitable for all the phrases and elements of doctrinal teaching. Doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness. And then the man of God, who started as a child, and don't forget the whole influence which is referred to in chapter 1, 
Verse 5, when I call to remembrance the unfaded faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois, and in thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. He had a grandmother, a mother, and a home where the word of God was taught. And here was this young man, now beginning to face the fact that he may be called upon to step into the shoes of the Apostle Paul. For Paul is going to say in the next chapter, I finish my course. I finish my course. And he said to Timothy, you see to it that you finish your ministry. Watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. So this subject we are dealing with in this series, while it can be profitable to all listeners, has particularly in view any people, any young people particularly, who may begin to feel the stirring in their hearts, oh I wish I could speak, oh I wish I could point others to the truth. Well, if I can do anything in my small way, to help you over a few styles, uh, I'll do so. Ultimately believing, of course, only God himself can, can ultimately lay his hand upon you and equip you, pick you up and use you. But he does use um, his own people in helping one another. So I look at verse 14 for a moment. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, that he adds these words, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. Why does he say that? I mean, if a person tells me the truth, what does it matter what his name is? Oh, that's true enough. But the Apostle Paul is always conscious uh, that the manner of life should go hand in hand with the doctrine you teach. And while he wouldn't boast and always admit admit, uh, that left to himself he would be a failure, but by the grace of God he stood, He's always urging those who listen to him that there should be this sort of comparison, this balance between their doctrine and their manner of life. So, for this present series, I want to turn our attention particularly to a twofold way in which the Apostle has brought this to our attention. I'll first of all read in 2 Timothy chapter 1 these words. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 13 Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. And then if you'll turn the page to 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15 This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief, or better still, who I am a first. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Now it's those two words, pattern and form. Now in the first case, let's get a correction. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, it says of some that they have a form of sound word. They have a form, but without godliness. Would you look at chapter 3, verse 5? Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. And such, in verse 7, will be ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge or acknowledgement of the truth. Now, there's the word form in its ordinary way. 
Are we to believe that the Apostle was writing to Timothy and telling him that he was to be just a formalist? He was to have a form of good words and not bother about how it affected his life and manner and attitude? Oh no. There are two distinct words used here. Two very distinct and opposite words. But when you look at the word pattern in 1 Timothy and the word form in 2 Timothy, then remember they're the same word. Now it's a long word to pronounce, hupotuposin. But it's easy to divide up into its parts. Hupo is a preposition that most of us are acquainted with, but in English we nearly always turn the U into a Y. We don't say a person is a hypocrite. That's the Greek. We call him a hypocrite, and I hope we don't have to do it many times. But that's why. Don't ask me why, though, in another sense. That's the change from one pronunciation to another in language. Then the word hypotuposin, T-Y-P, type. And then the ending of the word. So there's a word here that is embedded in the middle of it, the word type. And the hypo being under gives you the idea. Now, why is type called type? Why does a printer call the pieces of metal that have got the letters on them type? Well, you say, that's because they are type. Oh, that's no answer. Why are they called type? Well, the word, the, the verb behind the word type means to strike. Or you say, the printers all go on strike, do they? Oh, no, that's another meaning of the word. See, you can't have the type without having a matrix underneath and it being run into it or struck into it or beaten into it or moulded into it. And so we get in one passage that form of doctrine which was delivered unto you in the Epistle of the Romans could be translated that form or type of doctrine into which you have been moulded and run. So that we've got the word type as a result of something being uh, impressed with a, 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 a positive pattern, you see. And now we've got the type said the Apostle, my conversion and manner of life and the words that I have been given by God to put into this this series of epistles constitute a hypotuposin for you, Timothy, and for all that follow. Now then, how does the word hypotuposin, how is it used in, say, everyday language? It was in use in the Apostle's day and it means, roughly, a preliminary sketch before the finished design. God, as it were, in the life and teaching of the Apostle Paul, has given us, in large outline, all that he wants us to be till the travelling days are done. We shall be always finding we've got opportunity to fill in something that the Apostle left with two big lines. But we're not to go outside and add a lot more. We've got to keep in mind the pattern and the form. And I think most of us realise that that's enough to occupy most of us for the time we are allowed here to give a witness. It's not enslaving us. It's preventing us from wasting our time and our opportunities in going all over the place. And I think most of us would say this. If only we could get anywhere near to the position that the Apostle Paul occupied in the estimate of his Lord when our witness is over, we'd be a very thankful people. So, there's no slave, no enslaving of our uh, reason. There's no sort of putting us into bondage. We're only too glad to know that God has not left us without a sample, without a pattern to give us guidance as we stand up and witness for him.
Well, now we must try to take this a little further. I've got a glimpse here of a note that comes from an old Puritan hymn. A form of words, however so sound, will never save a soul. The Holy Ghost must give the wound, then make the wounded whole. Well, we don't want a form of words. There's too many who stand up and say a form of words and say them so many times that if they've said backwards, it wouldn't make much difference to them. You see, we don't want that. But we are concerned that what we teach shall have the uh, seal of God upon it. Now, in Galatians, the first chapter, the apostle very, very emphatically says with regard to the gospel he preached. And as that is what we have to start with when we're dealing with anybody, let's see what he says there about the gospel that you preach if you are following, following this pattern. Galatians 1. He says, in verse 6, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you unto the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. Again, you say, what a strange way of putting it. But if you're looking at the original, you realize there are two words for other. One means other of the same kind, like one apple and another apple and another apple. And then the other one means another of an entirely different kind. And that's what he says. Oh, he says, strictly speaking, there's not another. There could be no other gospel in the sense of a uh, one that you could make an option. But I'll tell you what is happening. There are some that trouble you who would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. That's a dreadful statement to make. So the apostle says, look, what I said, I'll say again. If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. He says it twice. Because it was such a terrible thing to say. He says, I mean it. Well, now you say, all right then. If I'm going to be on the safe side and walk in harmony with the will of God for me, as Paul is the pattern for me, the Gentile, I'll see to it the gospel I preach is in harmony with the gospel that was entrusted and preached by Paul. If you turn the page of Galatians, you'll see that this is not dropped but it's taken up again. He says in verse 1, chapter 2, Then fourteen years after I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and took Titus with me also, and I went up by revelation, and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. Well, you say, why do you go up and tell them that? Don't they know it? Well, let's read a few verses further down. You'll see that they recognized that he had a distinctive character. Verse 7, but contrarywise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter, for he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles, when James, Kephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen, and they unto the circumcision. You see? So they recognized in Jerusalem that Paul had a distinctive gospel to preach. And if you say it's all one and the same as Peter, all right. You still preach the one that Paul preached to be on the safe side. And if there was a difference, well, you let Peter speak to the twelve tribes scattered abroad as the, as the James and Peter addresses their epistles, and see to it that you preach that gospel that was entrusted 
to the only man in the New Testament who is called by God the Apostle of the Gentiles. I know Peter occupies that place in the minds of so many people. But if you read what it says about Peter in the Scriptures and compare it with what it says about Paul, you'll see that Peter never was sent in the sense that Paul was sent to the Gentiles, that only at the very end of his ministry in the Acts did he come into touch with a Gentile pure and simple, and when at last he did give him the word of salvation, the church immediately rose and called Peter to account for, for even speaking to a Gentile or going and sitting at the table with him. So you see, we've got to remember those things. So that's so far as the gospel is concerned. Well now let's look at other aspects. Let's look at the way in which Paul has stressed his sort of matter of life as an example. First of all, the one comes to our mind immediately in 2 Timothy chapter 3, where we have in verse 10 these words. But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience. There's a good list there, isn't there? Doctrine comes first, but all the rest of it has to do with his attitude. And Paul puts the lot in. He's reminding. Now, in the margin, it doesn't read, thou hast fully known, but it says, thou hast been a diligent follower of. That's right, Timothy. You have been right to follow. Now, he refers him right back to his earliest ministry. Verse 11, persecutions, afflictions, which came out to be at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. Well, if you go back to the Acts of the Apostles, that's where Timothy came into the story. Acts 15, you'll find the Apostle at Jerusalem. Acts 13, you'll find him at Antioch. Acts 16, Timothy joins. So right from the very beginning of Paul's public ministry, Timothy was there. What a searching thing it is to be able to say to anybody, you've known me, suppose we guess, you've known me 30 years, Timothy. And at the end of the 30 years, I can appeal to you and say, you know what manner of life I've lived. Oh, what a witness. Isn't that a weak spot in so many of us? I know there's a joke made about the clergyman who says to his congregation, now you listen to what I say, but don't you do what I do. But that's a dreadful thing to have to admit, isn't it? Here's a man by the grace of God who can combine together his doctrine and his manner of life. Or as he said, without apparently turning a hair, he says, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. As though that had an added point to it, and it did. Well now if you'll come to Philippians chapter 3, you'll see another example of the way in which the Apostle has introduced this same feature. Philippians chapter 3. He's now got the prize of the high calling in view, he's running the race, he's got the uh, pressing toward the mark and so on. Now he says, in verse 17, Brethren, be followers together of me. Again, you see, no hesitation in putting himself as a pattern. Be followers together of me, and mark them which walk, so as you have us, for an example. Well, the us will then possibly include those who were associated with him in the ministry. But Paul particularly stressing himself as well. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk, so as you have us, for an example. 
Now, shut off verses 18 and 19 a minute and go straight on. Which walk? So as you have us for an example for our conversation or manner of life or citizenship is in heaven from whence we look for a saviour. He said, these others, you see, verse 18, instead of setting their affection on things above, many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. They were minding earthly things. He said our conversation is in heaven. And so he was only calling attention to the fact that he sought to put into practice the very thing he had urged upon them when he was writing to the Colossians. Will you look at Colossians chapter 3? Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If ye then be risen with Christ, this is not an if of doubt, this is an if of argument. Now, assuming and accepting that you have been raised together with Christ, well, what's the natural outcome of that? Seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection, and this word affection doesn't mean our usual word affection, it could be translated the very bent. It's the word that gives us the word phrenology. I don't mean to say you've got to feel the bumps on your head before you know whether to set your affection on things above, but it's that which is your distinctive characteristic. That is to say, your very enemy or your very friend, if they had to admit it, would say, oh, you can't help but believe he's got his mind on things above. You see, do they say that of you and me? That's what the apostle means by that word affection. It's your bent. Uh, are not on things on the earth, for ye died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall he also appear or be manifested with him in glory. Here's the power of the blessed hope, enabling you to walk in harmony with it and leave many things that otherwise would be attractive. Well, shall now we come back again on our story and see a little bit more about this apostle's influence. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now the word minister has gained in modern usage a term of respectability. Uh, if you say, oh, he's the minister. You see, I remember an illustration a servant girl in the earlier days with a white cap, she opened the door and there stood the minister. But strictly speaking, it was one minister looking at the other because the word minister simply means a servant. So there was a servant girl looking at the man who was a servant, only he was the minister and she wasn't. You see. There's nothing respectable about being a minister except that you walk worthy of your calling and fulfil its obligations. But this particular word that Paul picked out was a desperate word. It meant an under-rower. And if you know, in those days they had ships on which the poor slaves were chained to the seats with their great sweeps that went rowing along and if in the course of battle the other ship could get its uh, course set to steer right across those, nearly every one of those men would die by having the end of their, the oar rammed into their stomachs. Happy thought, isn't it? 
That's what the apostle picked out and said, account of me as an under rower. This man who could have stood and said, I am the apostle of the risen Christ, the only apostle of the Gentiles. He did magnify his office when it came to it, but he never magnified himself. So he goes on. Let a man so account of us as of the ministers under rowers of Christ and stewards, someone who has been entrusted with the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Then he goes on to say that he's independent of your judgment or anybody else's. He said, in fact, I judge not myself. Verse 3. I know nothing by myself, which is not quite what he said. I know nothing against myself. I'm not conscious at this moment of having done anything desperately wrong, but I'm not justified by that because he that judges me is the Lord and he knows far more than I do about myself. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come. See, then shall every man have praise of God. Well now, after that, he goes into depths again. Verse 9. I think that God has set forth us the apostles last. Now that doesn't mean much to you and me, but it would to those who listen to those words when they were first uttered. You know that they had these great circuses and uh, like the Colosseum and the crowd were there waiting and they were waiting for one thing, but they kept them waiting. First of all there would be animals come in and then there would be men come in and then animals come in, but they were waiting for the bit that came last. And the last bit, they were nearly always condemned men who entered that arena and never left it alive. Never. That was a finish. They had to fight it to the death, either with other men or by animals. He said, I think, I think God has set forth us, the apostles, last, as it were appointed to death, for we are made a theatre. A good many people don't know the word theatre comes in the New Testament. Here it is. That word spectacle is the original of our word theatre. And made us a theatre unto the world and to angels and to men. Then he gives a list of a list of things that he'd suffered already, and he'd only been on the ministry for a few years. We are fools for Christ's sake, but ye are wise in Christ. We are weak, but ye are strong. Ye are honourable, but we are despised. Even under this present hour we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place. And labour working with our own hands, being reviled we bless, being persecuted we suffer it, being defamed we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and the offscouring of all things of this day. Can you get lower than that, friends? And would you believe it? When the man's getting all that terrible list, he says this in verse 16. Wherefore, I beseech you, be ye followers of me. Be ye followers of me. He's given you all that terrific list. It shows you, you see, that Christian ministry is not a soft job. It never should be. It never can be. In a world which is dominated by sin and the powers of darkness. I don't see that, I mean to say that every one of us who stand up to speak for the Lord is going to endure all this. Uh, but you don't forget, do you, that writing to Timothy in the second epistle, he said, endure hardness, do the work of an evangelist, as though the two went together. So here we have then, the apostle backing up his teaching by his manner of life. And you can feel a man who could go through that by the grace of God had some experience and could be in some measure a wonderful example. And again, in chapter 11, 
of the same epistle. This is a really a finishing up, but it starts the first chapter. Be ye followers of me. Now, why should the man keep saying that? Ah, he's giving you a little bit more to justify it. Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. I think we can sense a bit here. When you think of the perfect example of Christ, it rather staggers you, doesn't it? And you say to a, a young convert, or you say to an old Christian, you've got to follow in his steps. Peter says those words. Oh, you say, yes, but he was perfect. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. And I've got to follow him. So the Lord says, I've slipped in between the perfect example and you, someone who was a sinner like yourself. And an arrogant, boastful, blaspheming Pharisee. And his name was Saul of Tarsus. And that man became a follower of me so near that if you were to care to make a Bible study on your own and put down the things that are said of Christ and put down the things which are copied by Paul, you'd have a staggering list. Even the three times in the Garden of Gethsemane is echoed by Paul in Corinthians, three times I prayed that this should depart from me, the thorn in the flesh, any amount of things. So you see, we haven't got to be baffled and say, oh no, it's too tremendous an example, I can never do it. Paul has said, look, by his grace, I did it. Timothy, you're a shrinking young man, but you could do it. For the same grace that enabled Paul, enabled Timothy, could enable you and enable me. And then once more with regard to this emphasis upon following. 1 Thessalonians 1, six. One Thessalonians one six, and you'll see here it's immediately linked with the manner of life. He says in verse two, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labour of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. We stop there. All we say, how did Paul know that? Did he look into the secrets of God? Had he access to the book of life? How could he know these were elect? Well, he says, how do you know that a, a corn of wheat has grown and matured? Well, you see the fruit at the top. Oh, yes, he said. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God for, our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sakes, and ye became followers of us and of the Lord. What a mix. Isn't it wonderfully blended? We know that you are the elect of God because you were able to follow us and we follow the Lord. Manner of life enters into it, doesn't it, very strongly. And that, I think, should always be in our mind. I want now to turn back to Philippians for another term. In chapter 4, verse 9. We'll read 9, 10, 11 and 12 or down to 13 in case we don't get right through. Why, Philippians 4, 9. Be those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do and the God of peace shall be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. 
Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned, is another learning, in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I'm instructed, both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. And there's a lot more to it in the context. But let's come back to this again. In verse um, 9, those things which ye have both learned. Now, learning can arise from different sources. It may be just book learning. And I've met people who are very glib in quoting scripture, but not so glib in practicing it. That's the trouble. Now, what does this word learn? Where does this have come from? Well, it's the word that gives us the word disciple. Mantano. It gives us the word to learn as a disciple. And our English word disciple, you don't have to look it long enough before you see a little bit of discipline in it. It's not merely learning by rote, it's learning by heart. And so we have uh, those things which you have both learned, Timothy. You've learned. You've had some experimental acquaintance. You are a follower. You are, uh, the disciples were called by the Lord to follow him. They became disciples by following him. So there's one thought. And then, you have received. This is another characteristic. Uh, just to turn back to a well-known parallel passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you know how the Apostle stresses the word receive there. 1 Corinthians 15, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. You see, ye received, and he says, we have preached unto you that which we received. We received it in verse, uh, you received it in verse 1. We delivered unto you first of all that which, or I delivered, which I also received. Here is the receiving. And you receive it from the Lord. You receive it through the medium of his word. You may receive it through somebody pointing out to you. But you receive it ultimately as the word of God. This is stressed in um, Galatians 1. We looked at Galatians 1 just now. We might glimpse back again to, to verse 9 where he puts his finger on that word received. As we said before, so also again now, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, in the parallel in verse 8, is than that which we preached. In the first time he says that which we preach, and the second time he says that which he, re- which he receives, showing that it's the two sides of one action. And then in Colossians chapter 2, he has a, a, a word about this receiving which is useful and important. He says in Colossians 2, verse 4, And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with make-believe words, for though I be absent in the flesh, Yet am I with you in the Spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ, as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk ye in him. You've received him as Lord, for I preached it and you believed it. But he says to you, you call me Master and Lord and you do well, for so I am. But what are the things that I've told you to do? It's one thing to say, Lord, Lord, but it's another thing to do what he says. So if you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, 
Why not walk in him? Walk in harmony with such a condition. And 1 Thessalonians 2.13 This receiving. 2.13 For this cause also thank we God without ceasing. Because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. That's the characteristic of the word of God. It doesn't fall flat. It's not a dead word. It's not an empty doctrine. It effectually works in those that believe. And so we come back again to the passage that we were looking at in Philippians chapter 4. Here is the apostle who is able to call attention to his son Timothy and to all who follow in his steps, to the consistencies of his life. Let's read those words again and marvel at them. Verse 9. Those things which ye have both learned as a disciple and received as though a gospel truth and heard by repute and seen with your own eyes in me, now think of it. Fancy being able to say at the end of that lot, do. No wonder this man could emphasise the doctrine because he got such a manner of life behind it. That was the power behind his witness. And then he said, to crown it all, and the God of peace shall be with you. Well, I address myself now to those who are not in this present congregation in the chapel, who are listening to this tape recording, and especially to those who may be thinking that it is laid upon them to stand up and witness for the Saviour, do remember this blend, that there should be a walking with both feet, not walking like a cripple with one. There should be a consistent parallel between the doctrine and the manner of life. And don't go so far ahead in your doctrinal studies as to leave behind that desire that you should adorn the doctrine of God your Saviour in all things. For that will mean that however poor you may be so far as eloquence is concerned, your manner of life will speak. And you do know the statement that's been made in a proverbial way. Somebody once said, your actions speak so loudly that I cannot hear the words you say. Isn't that true? Or may that never be said of those who listen to this tape recording, that their actions are so deafening that the words they speak are inaudible. Or may they walk together, doctrine, manner of life, and then we can leave our witness in the hands of the Lord and look forward at least in some measure of satisfaction and feel that a few will stand with us in that day and share with us the well done, good and faithful servant. We have more studies to pursue in this direction under the terms truly furnished, but there we leave it again for the present session.